From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hi, and welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. My name is Brian Yell, and I am a firefighter paramedic currently assigned to the EMS section as the Supply and Equipment Coordinator. I'm going to be your host for the four-part series of this podcast. Today, we are doing something a little different than usual. On September 28th, the OCFA hosted the Vegas Strong After Action Review of the Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting in Las Vegas. Since then, we've been preparing the presentations from that event so we can make them available to everyone who wasn't able to attend. You can find the video versions of the presentation on Target Solutions, and there is a post-test in there so you can get the whole whopping one continuing education credit for each presentation. You can also choose to listen to the presentations as a podcast and take the test on Target Solutions afterwards. We wanted to give you a few options to access the presentations so you can learn what we learned that day. This is the second podcast in our four-part series and features Assistant Chief of EMS, Troy Tukey from Clark County Fire. Chief Tukey is going to give you an overview and talk about the lessons learned from the Route 91 shooting from the fire department's perspective. I'm not used to these, so this will be interesting. Um, thank you for the invite. Um, this is about the eighth or ninth one that I've done. I think uh, Chief, Chief has kept a log. We've done over 80 presentations across the country uh, to discuss the events uh, from October 1. Uh, they're still a little raw sometimes. And so, uh, forgive me if I uh, lose it a little bit every once in a while. But um, it's been a good learning experience for us. As we've talked as a command staff, uh, we learn more uh, visiting with, with other folks in other departments uh, than, than uh, we thought that we would. Uh, with the questions on those things, uh, we always come back and look at it just a little bit different. And it's been a great experience. So I hope it's a good experience for you and that, that the stuff that we decided to share uh, with you uh, will be helpful in your system and in your, uh, in your work that you do every day. It's always a little bit harder to talk in front of your peers because I respect and love what you do because I know how you think. And so hopefully this will, this will be very helpful. A little bit about the Clark County Fire Department. Um, we're the largest fire department in the, in the valley. There's five other fire departments besides us. Uh, we cover about 6,500 square, square miles, all of unincorporated Clark County. Have 30 stations, 60 ALS units. We respond to about four or 500 calls a day. We average about 150, 155,000 EMS calls a year. So um, we're busy, and this just added to it on that day. Um, the one thing that I don't want to forget, we. We've titled the, the presentation, One Purpose, 58 Reasons. The purpose is to get better at what we do and to plan and to do better the next time, wherever it is. And then 58 Reasons are the people that, that, that succumb to their injuries because of this tragic event. So that's what we do it for. October 1, I came home. My mom's birthday is tomorrow, September 29th. I have been up in northern Utah. Just got home that night about 8 o'clock. The event went happened about 10 o'clock. I was just kind of debriefing my wife on the trip because she wasn't able to go. Uh, my daughter had a soccer tournament, and so I was just debriefing her about the, about the, the trip and just kind of kicked my slippers off 
and I'm just sitting there enjoying my family, and I, the, the phone goes off. It says, hey, you need to get to the hospitals. Stuff's hitting the fan. You need to figure out what's going on and make sure that the trauma center is ready to go. So my assignment was the hospital liaison side for the two trauma centers as the assistant chief over EMS. That's easy for me because with my nursing and my paramedic background, that was a good fit for me. Work a lot with Dr. Shearer, he'll talk to you about the hospital end of it. But got in my squad vehicle. I live on the south side of town, heading up the strip because it was the fastest way. At Russell, which is about two blocks south of the Mandalay Bay, ran into a pickup truck full of people that were injured. They got in behind me. We were gonna to try to get them up the freeway, but for reasons that you'll see later on in the presentation, we were unable to get them there because the freeway had to be shut down because of all of the other active shooters and those kinds of things that were going on, or calls for active shooters. Looked in the back, husband holding his wife, shot in the head, obviously dead. Tough thing. Have to leave them there with an off-duty Metro officer to take care of that because we had other things to do. One of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life was to leave him there. But that's the reality of something this big, okay? Um, going from there, um, what, what's Route 91? Route 91 is a country music festival. It's situated on about um, 17 and a half acre site. 22,000 people are there. It's usually a three-day festival. Uh, very good, very easy going. One thing you don't know probably about Las Vegas is that from the stratosphere, all the way down to the South Point is the area that Clark County covers on the Strip. When those hotels are full at about 80 or 90% occupancy, we have an extra three to 400,000 people that move in and out of there every weekend. So we have another city on top of our 2.2 million people that, that live there on a daily basis that we have to account for and run calls with and for. So this is the bad guy give you a little feel for kind of what happened, clear up some of the misconceptions, rooms. we won't spend a lot of time, but I think it's worth it so you know kind of what we were facing and why there was a, so much, uh, things, so many things going on. He was 64 years of age, uh, no real history, nothing. He had no, he had $10 million in the bank, um, no real reason for why he did what he did. Um, worked as an IRS agent, worked at an auditor, um, those kinds of things, he worked for the Postal Service. Two warning flags for me, he was an IRS guy and a postal guy. So, <laughs> take it for what it's worth. Um, uh, he owned several properties, like I said, he sold his last investment property for about $10 million. Um, he was a high roller, what we call a high roller at, in Vegas is they pretty much get what they want, they get suites, they get those kinds of things, they have open-ended tickets that they pay off their markers and stuff. So he'd been in and out of a lot of these casinos um, a lot of times. And so he was very well known. Um, let me think what else I wanna do. Okay, on October 1, um, he checked in about two days before and uh, he rented a, a suite and then the next day he rented a suite adjoining to. So he was on the 32nd floor, uh, suite 135, suite 134. You'll see pictures of this here. About 10.05 or so is when he, he rang out the first shots and he shot for about 10, 11 minutes, cracked off about 1,050, 1,100 rounds in that 10, 10 minute time frame. Um, originally, uh, one of the security guards was doing his normal rounds. He was checking the door. 
he had sealed the door on his end, an exit door, with, with an L bracket, so to impede the progress up uh, to him. He had also done a couple other things uh, that, was, that were pretty interesting. This is the suite looking out uh, from, from inside going out to the hallway. He had rigged up uh, a live feed to his computer screen from a food cart out in the hall so he could see who was coming down the hall. The security guard came down the hall. He saw him, reached out of the, out of the door, shot a, a few rounds at him. That's when we knew something was going on. He, he tucked back in and locked himself into the two suites. But he was able to see um, what was going on in the hall. This is the suite. You see all the guns and all the ammo and the tracings, all of the casings on the floor. Um, this is the cart that was out in the hall. You can see the little um, video camera underneath the plate on the food service cart. So that's how he was able to see what was going on. Um, this is where he stitched the window. Um, they, we believe that you first thought he could knock it out with that little sledge. I think some of the first shots that drew attention was him stitching the window so he could knock out the window and be able to shoot out the window there. Um, this is just going to here. You see the little blue tube. Um, he had rigged some, some uh, airlines, so in case he used smoke and those kinds of things for him. He was planning to get away, I think. We don't know that for sure, but he had done a lot of training and a lot of pre-planning, and we think that he thought that he could eventually get away. Um, this is just more of the thing of, of the suites and those kinds of things. This is what we found, this is what officers found. 14 AR-15s, 8 AR-10s, a bullet action 308, a 38 revolver. We talked about the 1,100 rounds that he cracked off. Um, numerous other ammo magazines and 10 suitcases. He had moved all of those things over about a two to three day period with a bell cart up to the room. So he just done it methodically and, and very quietly and nobody had a reason to suspect him because he was a high roller and had pretty high markers at the, at the hotel. Um, this is his house um, in Mesquite, pretty much the same. Um, most of the firearms were bought between 10, uh, 2016 2017. Um, in his car, in the Mandalay Bay parking garage, they found all of this other stuff, so more stuff that he hadn't been able to get up to the room. Um, very lengthy, as you can imagine, with everything that's going on, a complicated investigation. 40 terabytes. Now, I'm not an IT, I'm not an IT geek, but I know what a megabyte and a kilobyte is, and I know that that's a lot more than that. And so, 20,000 hours of video, 250,000 pictures from all the hotels, and those kinds of things that they look through. Um, search of one of the computers that they found in the room was, um, Summer concerts 2017, Ohio Beach, SWAT Las Vegas, ballistic charts, all those kinds of things. He had checked in into Boston, into a room that overlooked Fenway Park as well. And then there, up further north in the city's area, um, he had rented a room for a festival that was a couple weeks before called Life is Beautiful. And uh, he didn't do anything with that. He uh, went down the mountain of Bay. Um, no reason. No manifestos, no any of those kinds of things. All the stuff that was all over the news that he had ties to um, Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda and, and ISIS and all that stuff were unfounded. Um, all the weapons that he used were purchased legally um, and he had no crime. So there's really no way that anybody would have suspected that something like this was in the works with him. 
The one, one of the things that worked out really well for us, because a lot of things didn't really go the way that we trained or the way that we planned, or we had to make adjustments on the fly, was that right there, that blue circle is a metro substation, that's Southwest Area Command. And so we were able to set up unified command there really close to the actual incident. So that's one of the few things that, that worked into our favor and into our advantage, because we were able to get everybody from all of the jurisdictions and everybody that had a, a part in the response was able to get there. And we were able to establish unified command quickly in a place that we could actually do something instead of out on the street. And so, and really, really close. In, in Vegas, in Clark County, based on the number of people at an event, based on the type of event, there's a minimal amount of uh, EMS personnel, either private or public, that need to be at the event to cover it. Minimal amount of met Metro and Las Vegas uh, Metropolitan Police Department personnel that need to cover the event for command and control. So that was all hit. So medical tents there on the on the northeast side, command tents there for Metro. That was the command post. 51 personnel, 16 ambulance people, uh, zero, zero fire department, and we'll talk about that in a minute. That has since changed for obvious reasons. Dozens of off-duty FDEMS military law enforcement were at the event, and they were very, very helpful inside. They could have run and taken their families home, and they didn't. They, they got their families out, and they went back in and helped. It was awesome for those guys to do. So here is some live footage of, of what it sounded like when he started cranking off the, uh, the rounds. This is 110 rounds in about 15 seconds. <laughs> Right across, right on top of it. 
um, and so they were stationed there. Um, the incident happened in our jurisdiction. Three other fire, fire, uh, Valley Fire Departments responded. Uh, City of Las Vegas, uh, Henderson, and uh, North Las Vegas all assisted us. Total response for the, for the event was 15 engine companies, three truck companies, 26 rescues, a squad, seven battalion chiefs, all of our command staff saved one. That was, a, that's a funny, we gave him, he just retired. Uh, chief Webster was our MACTAC division chief. He was in Atlanta at a conference when this one went down. <laughs> and we, he was really sad that he was gone because he was the one in charge of all the stuff that we'll talk about moving forward. And he was the only one of the command staff gone that day. So we all responded. So 161 total, 81 from county fire. Uh, 60 to 70 related calls pending at any one time with five or six people. And they kept, a, uh, kept up with all of us. Um, this one will tell you a lot of things. Nine hours and 27 minutes is the time when a command was initially established till command was terminated in the next morning at about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. It was 15 hours, over 15 hours of radio traffic that we've looked at. It was a very, very busy, very, very hectic um, scene, and they kept us in line, and they did a very good job. Um, challenges, the ones I want to talk to you about from the provider side for us, victim egress, distraction calls, our, our incident stress management, family assistance center and resiliency center, all important, all very important each in their own ways. There's really not one that's less important than the other, um, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about that. Command engine 32. Engine 32, you have a division supervisor, what do you need? In route to my division chief, we've been flagged down. We have a victim shot in the neck in front of Hooters. I need an ambulance here, please. Copy that. Make that three ambulances total. I have three total gunshot wound victims in front of Hooters. Okay, so 17 and a half acres went to three and a half square miles was the size of the actual incident once it fully developed. Once it fully developed. I told you I wasn't good with these things. Um, 17 and a half acres to three and a half miles was the scene. Okay, so we have engines, rescues, everybody trying to follow our normal command and control, divisions, branches, all of those kinds of things. And then none of them, for the most part, could get where they were assigned to go because depending on where they were coming from, they were running into people that were running away that were all extremely hurt. So everything that you learned about MCIs and all of the triage treatment, transport, and everything being nice and neat, and you have a nice little corridor to run everything through, it doesn't work here. The best we can do is manage it. You're not going to control it, okay? We're all control freaks. If you say you're not, you're lying, okay? We like things all in a nice little box. We like it all to work the way it's supposed to and the way that we've trained and the way that we've drawn it up on the grease board and it's gonna work this way and we're gonna make it all work. It doesn't, okay? So we have to change the way that we think. It works great on paper sometimes, but what works on paper doesn't always work when you have this kind of an event and the magnitude of the event, okay? Um, There should be more traffic. Command, Agent 32. 
Engine 32. Yeah, Chief, I have a total of six gunshot wound victims here. I have one patient that's been brought up that is 419 in the vehicle. We're going to need Metro to secure the scene. We're going to need two additional fire department units and a total of six ambulances. Okay. So he, Engine 32, was actually assigned way on the south side, and he got stuck on the north side, and he's already got seven criticals, and he doesn't even know where to start. He did a really good job, but that happened time and time again. They had to adapt and figure out, based on their training, what they were going to do and get people there, okay? Training, training, training is important because if you have good training, you can adapt the training to the situation and make it work. And that's what happened, okay? They did a really, really good job adapting and overcoming and using their training and making common sense decisions, okay? That's what had to happen. McCarran Airport's eighth or ninth busiest airport in the country. I can't remember how many millions of flights a year that they, they passengers that they fly in and out of there. Razor wire, all of the gates and stuff broke through all of that to get away from the shooting, okay? They closed uh, our main runway, I think, for, if I remember right, three minutes, and our other runway was closed for about 30-plus minutes uh, because of people on the runway trying to just get away from this union because of the proximity to it. So about 35 or so uh, never made it really off of the scene. Um, the other 20 or so got to the hospitals or died en route to the hospitals. Very few people died once they got to the hospital. Very few. They, they, they did a lot of great work. Um, so as you can imagine, I'm backing up out of, of, the high, uh, out of where I got stuck with that truck with the, with the first lady that I saw from the incident. I'm trying to get around, and this is what I hear going to the hospital trying to figure it out, okay? Multiple calls, what we learned later was, and as you know, we know there was one shooter, but as people self-extricated looking for help and went into other casinos and went into other establishments, everybody started reporting that as an active shooter, not somebody being shot like Josh had talked about, okay? They thought there was another shooter in their building. So this is what that sounded like, and this is what I listened to on the way to the hospital. North Division, go ahead. Hey, Chief, we're getting reports from bystanders that they saw somebody go into an RV directly across the street from where we're at, wearing fatigue and a black duffel bag. Plan 6, be advised we're getting reports on Mandalay Bay, the top of Mandalay Bay at the bar. We currently have a another active shooter up there. I've reports that there's an active shooter at New York, New York, and shots heard from Hooters. We have reports of active shooters now at Hakkasan and New York, New York. I have not confirmed that. Also getting reports that shots are being fired at MGM as well. Shots fired at MGM. We now have a report of an active shooter at the Tropicana, active shooter at the Tropicana. Command from North Branch, emergency traffic. We have people on the roof of the Tropicana, at least two people on the roof of the Tropicana. Emergency traffic, emergency traffic. Uh, shots fired in the Tropicana. Shots fired in the Tropicana. Command from North Branch, we're getting people evacuating out of the 
Excalibur reporting that there's a fire in there. Air Chief, uh, Chief Blackburn's receiving reports of shots fired in the planet Hollywood, and I see strobes going off inside of the Mandalay. Uh, Chief Blackburn just came in here. He's reporting shots fired at Caesars now. Be advised, we are currently being, receiving reports of an active shooter at McCarran Airport. Repeat, active shooter at McCarran Airport. Man, be advised, we're getting reports on the 34th floor of Mandalay Bay. There has been an explosion in the 32nd, 33rd, and 34th floor on fire. Command, we just had a backpack show up unattended right where EMS France is set up at Alibaba and Giles. We're uh, relocating from the area. Command operations also, we're getting reports of um, hostages being held currently at uh, New York, New York. Emergency traffic, uh, Force Protection 6 is reporting shots fired at the New York, New York. Pretty heavy load, huh? I wanted to find a place to hide. Not really, but um, a lot of, lot of resources right there, right? Think of all, we got all of those people, tons of people getting shot, all of those kinds of things, and we have all of these on top of that, okay? All of those had to be cleared eventually, okay? And we'll talk about that in a minute, how we did that but it's resource heavy and intensive. You gotta remember this, one of our smaller hotels, or medium-sized hotels in LA Bay, 3,500 hotel rooms. So when you say we're gonna sweep the Mandalay Bay, it takes a little while to sweep that and make sure everything's good. Okay, this is the people that uh, crashed the airport. They, they found it in hand. This is Nate, uh, what's it? Sheldon Adelson's hangar. And, uh, they, they were able to break into the hangar. Guess what they found? Booze. <laughs> and they didn't leave it alone either. And I don't know that I blame them. So, uh, real quick, casualty statistics. 800 patients, more than 800 patients, 422 people shot, 58 killed, 13 area hospitals shot, uh, saw patients. And we only transported as an EMS group, even with all of our resources, over 800 hurt. We only transported a little more than 250. So about a third did we directly lay hands on and transport the normal conventional way. Everybody else got to a hospital or medical care on their own, in the back of a pickup, in the back of a stolen pickup, whatever they could find, they were getting somewhere to get some help. Okay? So, what would you do? You're gonna hit Siri, right? What's the closest hospital? Karen will talk to you. She's the ED director at Desert Springs. They were in the, they were in the hole. They were the closest hospital who saw a lot of patients. Desert Springs. Dr. Shear at Sunrise saw the most because they were the nearest trauma center. But the accidents that the, the shooting was down here, the three closest hospitals were Desert Springs, Sunrise, and University Medical Center. University Medical Center is level one, Sunrise is a level two trauma center, and Desert Springs is a, a good old community, great hospital, but they don't like trauma there. <laughs> they liked it a whole lot better a week later because they got really good at it. Okay, so that's an outlay of kind of the event leading up, the bad guy, what we dealt with, what our crews dealt with there. So what did we learn and how did we prepare for something like this? Back in 2008, the Mumbai attacks happened. Um, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department went over there and studied it. They came back and started the Fusion Center. 
uh, in our valley in 2008. In 2012, um, we, as a Clark County Fire Department, placed a full-time captain in the Fusion Center as a link between law enforcement and us, okay? How many of you guys here in, in your system, I don't know it very well, you have what I would call silos of excellence? If you're in your silo, you do a really, really good job. But if you have to mix the silos and those kinds of things, that's where all the gummy and the gray and everything like that happens. At least in Vegas, that's what happened, right? In your own silo, you do really, really good work, but when we start having to try to work together and kind of integrate, it gets a little gummy and everybody kind of gets a little territorial and everybody wants to do a really good job, right? Okay? As long as you stay out of my silo, okay? You can't have that mindset moving forward because that is the death nail to handling anything like this, okay? Um, like I said, we started putting a captain in there in 2012 and we drilled and we drilled and we drilled. Our mistake was we drilled with all of our pre-hospital care providers and all of our law enforcement guys and we got to know each other really, really well. Which I'll do. Who did we leave out? We left out some of the times our private partners, the guys that franchise and do our transports for us, and we left out the hospitals. We did very few big drills that involved the hospitals. Well, how are we gonna make that work? Even if we do a good job in our silo, right? And we get every day, and we can't, and we don't have a relationship with the hospitals. How are we gonna make that work? Where are we gonna take it? We're gonna take them to the hospitals, the hospitals are gonna get them on their own. So we have to figure out ways to make that better, okay? Because that's what's gonna happen, and that's what we learned on October 1. Even as prepared as we were, and we were really prepared, I was really proud, and our chief, my chief, is really proud of what we did, and we did a really good job. But it exposed some weaknesses that we're working on, and the biggest weakness, at least from my point of view as an EMS chief, is the silos. We have to work with all of our partners, hospitals, everyone. If it doesn't happen, we won't be successful or as successful as we could be. Okay, so what do we do to, to start doing that on the outside with the Metro comes to our rookie school. Metropolitan Police Department has their TAC officers come to our rookie school and do a day-long class about why they do what they do and how we can help them. Pretty good idea, right? Well, guess what? Our CCFD training officers go to Metro rookie schools and tell them what we're doing and why, and why we do the things that we do. You think that's helpful? It is very helpful. And we have a very, very good relationship with Metro and with, with NHP, with the, the Highway Patrol and all of our law enforcement partners there because of this kind of training. Um, we have regular training with our sergeants and our lieutenants and our battalion chiefs. They know each other in their different working areas. Southwest Command lieutenants and sergeants know the battalion chiefs that, that cover their area and that just the way all over town. That has done more for unifying command and knowing what to do when we have these things hit than anything else. They know each other. They have a personal relationship. It's not some guy just showing up talking on the radio in a different uniform. 
they actually know each other. And that's helped a great deal. And uh, we have a hostile MCI plan, okay? I don't know if you guys do or not. We sift and sort, we don't do formal triage. We do black, black for dead and orange for alive when we're in the warm zone, okay? And we bring them out to an area. Did that work? As cool as this plan is, and all of the times we practice it in the malls and at the airport and uh, different areas, do uh, you think any of this worked? Some of it worked. They adapted and they overcame, right? But this is where we drew it up on the grease board. We have a dirty area. We have an area where there's a shooter or, or a warm zone. We have RTFs that go in, at least two Metro officers and two of our guys that are sifting and sorting, looking to see who is live and who is, and reporting back how many they have. They bring them out to a clean area. They transition, Metro does a search, make sure we don't get bad guys through there. And then they go out to a treatment transport area and out to the hospital. That happened kinda in a lot of different places for 250 out of the 800 that we saw on the night of October 1. The other six or 700 showed up at the hospital saying, help me. Okay, RTFs, we talked about that. There are rescue task forces. We plan for normal stuff, malls. We have lots of uh, nightclubs in, in Las Vegas. Some of them are 30 and 40,000 square feet. They have two and three and four levels. And we've trained in there. We have good relationships with all of the nightclub owners and, and things. I go to a meeting once a month called Zone where all of the nightclub owners from all of the hotels, we meet and talk about security concerns and we talk about different things that we can make better. Um, again, trying to break down those silos and understand where each of those people from the different silos are coming from. What's their concerns? What, what are they trying to accomplish? How can we help them and how can they help us? All of those kinds of things. That is the most important thing out of all of it. Um, we never did a drill that we used more than about three RTFs. So about four officers, so four and four would be eight, so about 24 people. The night of October 1, we deployed 19 to do all of the sweeps for that slide to where all of those other calls were. And it took them most of the night and into the morning to do all of those sweeps and make sure that everything else that was called in was clear and clean. Um, other private partners and those kinds of things, we talk about, we'll talk about now. Um, stop the bleed. I'll save that to the end. It's one of my, one of my biggest, biggest things, but I'll save that to close. Um, you gotta work with hospitals. Like, I, like I, I mentioned before, we did lots of drills. We did lots of different things and we worked with our law enforcement and our pre-hospital partners and we hardly, if ever, involved our hospital partners. In fact, what, three or four months ago, we had a drill out of the high school where we had all of our hospital partners come out with us with all the EMS chiefs and they watched the same thing we watched. And we took page after page after page after page of notes based on what they told us. They were thinking of what they needed to make happen so that they could be ready to accept patients. I learned more in that one day than I have in probably three or four years just because I invited the right people to the drill. 
so I can get their point of view, stuff that we don't think about out here, okay? Um, okay, uh, with that being said, one of the things we're doing um, to integrate the hospitals, okay, we're, we're developing a thing that we're, and we're not done with it yet, so don't quote me on this, but we're setting up what we call a hospital area command, okay? So we have 16 total hospitals in the valley. Um, we're inputting them into the CAD as a unit. That unit is gonna have five numbers that are associated position specific that are gonna get a pre-alert page. I don't know how you guys run your MCIs, but uh, we have a first, second, third, fourth medical alarm, just like we would on the fire side based on the number of patients that we're getting reported. If we call or any of our officers call the first medical alarm, a page is gonna be sent via the dispatcher based on the address. The two trauma centers and the three closest hospitals are gonna get a page that they have a first medical alarm working in their area to start to prepare to meet patients, okay? Um, if the uh, incident commander, once he gets on scene and confirms that they actually do have patients, the second page is going to go out that says it's active. Then they're going to start putting their plans into play. Command staff level, battalion chief level is going to go to the dispatch to run hospital area command. An engine and a rescue is going to be sent to each of those five hospitals to help with command and control of three or 400 patients that show up at the door, okay? Um, that's just a rough overview of what we're trying to do, but it makes the most sense. It's just extending ICS where? To the hospital as well, right? And, and hearing direct. Another problem we had on October 1 was communication between hospitals, okay, and, and EMS, because we didn't know how many people were showing up. Okay, we had to decompress Desert Springs Hospital, they couldn't handle the patient load and the, and the number of serious patients. Sunrise, you'll hear from Dr. Shear, they, they saw hundreds of patients, okay? We needed to shuffle that around, but we didn't know what we needed to shuffle because our communication wasn't as good as it needed to be. Okay, hopefully, that this, hopefully this hospital area command will make it a little bit easier to see where the resources are needed, how many patients are showing up, Patient tracking will get better. We'll know where everybody's showing up, whether they come in by EMS or not. Okay, so that's just one of the fixes we're training on and, and working on and trying to, to get active. And we're a year later. That's a Scarstown Dr. Shear on the way down today. We're a year later from a really bad event and we still haven't inked anything yet. And we've been working really, really hard to make it happen, but it takes time to break down silos, get everybody in the room, get talking and those kinds of things. So start now. You gotta start. So caring for our own, big problem, okay? Um, kind of gets overlooked. I always just send somebody out to talk to them and they'll be okay. One of the things that I love about my chief the most is even in the midst of all of this, and I can't even imagine how much was on his plate. He called all of his command staff at about two and said, hey, we're meeting at the training center at six in the morning, everybody that was involved in the wreck, involved in the shooting, will be there by seven. We're gonna get our eyes on all of our people, okay? They didn't wanna come. I imagine your guys and gals are the same. They just wanted to go home. But 
It's one of the best things we ever did. He was brilliant with that. We were able to get eyes on. They were able to talk, the ones that wanted to talk a little bit about it. We were able to get eyes on everybody and tell them first what a great job they did. Second, we were glad that they were safe, what they needed, anything that their families needed, and we sent them home within an hour. But we were able to get eyes on them and know and kind of feel about what was going on. Big deal, big, big deal. Um, EIAFF came in. Um, they sent three or four crisis counselors from the IAFF, and um, we brought them back in the following Wednesday. Let them have a couple of days to decompress, and they could bring in just themselves or their families. It was surprising to me how many of the responders that were there that night brought in their families with them, and it was a really good thing. Okay, the IFF also helped us to figure out of all the behavioral health organizations that were in our valley, which ones that they would recommend. We had 10, they recommended four. So we were able to whittle down and get people the right help into the right spot for the things that they had been going through. The event happened, we work a, a five day on, every other day for five and then it gets six days off. The crews that ran this were on a platoon. The morning that this happened was their last shift, which was a blessing in some ways, and in that it let them go home and decompress. We could get them in on Wednesday to visit with them. But the following first day back is always a litmus test, right? Nobody really called off sick. Everybody was there, and the IFF and a few of our PST people were able to go around to each of the stations that were involved and visit with the crews in their house where they were comfortable and get a second eye on everybody. And that was a very, very important and big thing for us as far as making sure that our people were at least initially okay. Um, some of the things they did, I mean, they were doing lots of things. I still haven't figured out, I didn't go. A lot of the guys swear about this trauma yoga stuff, um, if it helps, it helps, you know, it doesn't matter what, but um, this meditation, and a lot of people came by um, and, and helped us. Um, they organized a big get-together for everybody to heal on the 16th. A lot of the country guys came and uh, did a little uh, concert for everybody and let everybody get together. Uh, that helped, just talking and being together and those kinds of things. Um, future needs going forward, what we're going to need. We had already established a pretty big peer support team presence on County Fire. I can't speak for the other agencies. We have at least 20 or 30 people that are on the floor, besides a couple of our command staff that are PSD people, that do a really good job. So we had already done that. We've had more, obviously, after this, after this event want to be involved, and those ranks are growing and the training is good. And I like our own people talking to our own people and then letting them know that it's okay to go talk to somebody else. And it's, it's a very good thing. It's been very healthy. Our sick leave um, and all those kinds of things hasn't really risen greatly. Here and there, we've had a few isolated things where people have been having some trouble. But for the most part, and I believe because of all of these things, it's been kept to a minimum. Now, time will tell. We're only a year in. 
Okay? A lot of the guys and the gals that responded to that incident had less than five years on. So they've got a, a way a lot more of their career in front of them than some of us old guys that are long in the tooth, right? So it's going to be interesting over time as they see other things, what effect that will have on them being involved in October 1. But we've got the right things in place, and we're learning all the time. Um, then we had to document the event. Um, your battalion chief here um, read part of the FEMA deal. Um, a lot of the FEMA deal came. The second thing the chief did was he assigned three captains off of the floor that had been involved in the MACTAC development from 2008 through 2018 to come off the floor for six months and do all of the interviews and documentation. They listened to all of the tape. They listened to everybody that was involved in any way or whatsoever and took notes. And then those guys met with FEMA. He set that up and it was done two days after the event and they were on it and going. And so that helped a lot because everything was fresh and they were able to get to people quickly and we could document so that we could learn down the road as we looked back. Okay. Um, Family Assistance Center, that's another thing you don't really typically think about as a, as a fire department function. Metro tried to start it up. It really wasn't in their bailiwick. And um, our, uh, another thing that's interesting about County Fire is the Office of Emergency Management for Clark County is underneath the fire department. One of our deputy chiefs is the emergency manager for Clark County. That really, really helped with all of this. So he set up the Family Assistance Center. Um, they were ready to go the morning, Monday afternoon, I think. I have to look and see. They, they decided at 2 o'clock, at 6 o'clock. Um, Chief Steinbeck got the assignment at 8 o'clock. They were starting to take calls and get information from the people that were involved and for families and civilians coming in. Massive amounts of need. Um, the purpose of the Family Assistance Center was to support the families of the victims with crisis. You had people coming in from all over the country trying to find out about their loved ones. Um, they needed places to stay. They needed the ability to talk to whoever they needed to talk to. The decedents, family members and people that were coming in had to have a way to claim the body and to be able to take them home when the time was right. So there was a lot of stuff going on all at once. And so it was multi-pronged. We're still cleaning up after the accident. And they had the Family Assistance Center up at eight o'clock the next morning. So it was going, it went pretty well. Uh, the coroner had done all of his work uh, and by October 5th, and so all of the bodies after that of the decedents were, were, were done and were able to be uh, taken home. 24-7 um, for the first three days, and after that they worked another nine days, uh, nine hour days um, through, through um, through the end. Um, they took care of child care, air and ground, lodging, crime victims, um, those kinds of things, filling out the proper paperwork so that all of the claims and everything could be done. Um, legal stuff, ID services, personal effects return, um, lots of stuff going on. We, he assigned two captains to run that, and they were the instant commanders um, there. All of our PIO stuff, um, but we had a lot of help. FBI, Metro, Red Cross, uh, all of the agencies and a lot more came in to help us 
people that were involved in the shooting in Orlando came and were with us for about a week to teach us lessons about donations and when you set up a victim's fund, how crazy that can get and how to document where all that money's going and all those kinds of things. So we had people from all over the country coming in to help us. Um, at the end of the day, what, there you go. Uh, total served uh, through the Family Assistance Center uh, was 4,356 people in about 21 days, 22 days. Um, they were able to do that. Um, and they stood down the Family Assistance Center on October 23rd, and then they, we went to the Resiliency Center, which was the same purpose, the same goals, the same everything uh, as the Family Assistance Center, but for an extended amount of time. We don't even know how long that'll be open. Probably another year or two or three at least. Um, same goals, long-term needs, short-term needs, um, just trying to put the community back together after the event. Okay. Um, okay. How do you prepare for something like this? We thought we were prepared, and we were. And we had done a lot of different things. I mean, we, when they redid the uh, airport, um, they, they knocked the whole A section down before they knocked it down. We put 30 people in there with smokes, blew up a car in front of the airport, all sorts of stuff, to make it as live as we could for them and, and to learn. Um, you'd have never thought in a million years about a guy breaking out a window on the 30th floor of one of our buildings and shooting 800 yards across the street into a crowd of people. How do you think about that? I, don't even, I can't even wrap my mind around it now, and it happened a year ago. You know, so somebody else will do something that we haven't thought about before somewhere else, or maybe in Vegas again, I hope not. But you have to prepare. If you don't have an emergency operations plan that includes everybody that's involved in the silos and breaking those silos down, you're, you're doomed. You're doomed. You'll do the best you can and it'll be fine, and you'll get everybody to the hospital, they'll get themselves to the hospital, and you'll treat them, and we'll save as many as we can. But the point is, if we're prepared more and better, and we break those silos down, we'll save more. Okay, we'll, we'll save more. Okay, um, you gotta identify the key players. How many of you guys have been in a meeting, and somebody says, well, I have to go check to my boss. I see what they say. You can't have those kind of meetings. We're a year later, and we've had tons of meetings with the players, with the people that can make decisions, okay? It takes a while, but you gotta get the right people in the room, and they gotta talk frankly and be willing to admit that they don't have all the answers. Because we don't, and we're trying to learn together, okay? Um, develop a template or a playbook, okay? We had three RTFs. We ended up with 19. Captains are only supposed to lead the RTFs on the CCF side. You think I had 19 captains that night that were going to be able to lead an RTF? No. They adapted because what? They had been trained and they had enough training to make it work. Okay. Um, practice, practice, practice. Um, like I said, they, they adapted and they overcome. Develop a hostile MCI policy if you don't have one. 
Uh, we're in the middle of a whole rewrite for the county for our MCI plan. The whole county for all of the agencies. Uh, we're, we're rewriting all of that. We're about three-fourths of the way done with that as well. But you got to have those things and you got to be knowledgeable with what's in it and your people on the ground. Us command staff and stuff, we don't really matter at the end of the day. We're going to be able to tell people what to do here and there. The people on the street need to know what the expectation is. We need to give them the tools that allow them to adapt and overcome, and they need to understand the plan because they're the ones that are going to get the work done. And they do really good work, and our guys and gals do really good work, but we've got to get them better tools to be able to do that. Um, special events planning, I talked to you about that a little bit. Um, we're now folded in. We didn't have a command presence at uh, the Route 91. The thing is, too, to remember, any given week in Las Vegas, especially in the summer, we'll have a half a dozen events that are that size. We have six of those going on all at one time, all over different parts of the valley and along the strip. So we don't have enough resources to run the call volume that we do to have a big contingent at any of those events. But what we have changed is a captain or a battalion chief at some of these larger events, higher profile stuff. So they're already in unified command. If something goes down, we already have a playbook, okay? The BCs aren't coming in off the floor, swinging from the hip, trying to do the best they can with what they got, okay? They have somebody there that already knows with an IAP, communication plan, all those kinds of things that comes together so that we give them the tools that they need. That's it, okay, so I'll end with one story. Stop the bleed. Stop the bleed and all those kinds of things, okay? I read all 58 coroner reports for the 58, 58 people that did that. I did that because I wanted to know how many of those people we could have saved if we'd have done a better job. I was a little nervous to do that, but what I found is when I read through all 58 of those posts, all but one, it wouldn't have mattered for those 58. It wouldn't have mattered. We couldn't have saved them anyway. There was a young girl though, she was 23 or 24, okay? Died of a popliteal artery bleed because she was shot in the back of her she came in with a tourniquet on, but she was dead. Okay, so that tells me two things. Tells me, number one, we didn't get to her fast enough with a tourniquet, or whoever placed that tourniquet didn't do it correctly. That was the only, that's the only one that really bothers me to this day. It all bothers me. But that one drives me to make things better because if we would have had more training to the civilian people and push packs and all the things we teach and stop the bleed, right? She would have had a better chance of someone getting to her sooner and adequately putting on a tourniquet and stopping that bleed instead of bleeding out and dying. So whatever you do, all that gets back to her for me. Better planning, breaking down the silos, getting your stop the bleed stuff out, doing all of the things that we can do to be better will help the next one with a simpler injury. 
and that's what it's about. We're not going to be able to stop it all, and we're going to be outmatched every time we have one of these, but we can get better at what we do, and we can do a little bit better and save just a few more. And so that's it for today. Thank you. That is all for this episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other podcasts in this Vegas Strong series. Be sure to log into Target Solutions and take the post test so you can get your CEs for this. We hope to bring you more content like this in the future. If you have any suggestions for future conferences, please reach out to me and EMS. Until then, take care of each other and we'll talk to you soon.